Welcome to the Glass Lab podcast, where we talk all things product development. It's our goal every month to introduce you to the people, ideas, and development tools that are shaping the hardware products we all use every day. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew Westrick, CTO here at Glassboard, back for another episode. And uh, Grant Chapman, CEO at Glassboard, joins me uh, like he usually does. And on today's episode, uh, we are joined um, by uh, Toff Day, who is the CEO at Elevate Ventures, as well as Matt Hunkler, CEO at Powder Keg. So super excited to have you guys on the podcast and uh, really you know, appreciate you guys coming out and talking to us um, you know, about uh, you know, funding, connecting, sort of the glue that exists uh, you know, in, you know, in our world. Right. So, uh, you know, obviously Grant and I were on the product development side of things, but it takes a lot more than just product development, uh, to get products to market. So super excited to have you guys on and talk more about that today. So Thanks for having us. you guys just yeah. want to talk a Thanks little bit about us. your background and maybe just give us a brief introduction. Yeah. Sure. And we can so, make them, you know, go rock, paper, scissors on camera if we want to. See yeah. That <laughs> you hit it, man. You take it, take it away. All right. So I'm, um, I grew up here in Indiana and uh, always had entrepreneurial DNA. Uh, grandpa was uh, actually my great grandfather had a mobile service station all throughout Indianapolis, uh, eventually kind of spread across the Midwest. And then when my uh, grandfather became in-laws with my great grandfather, uh, he started kind of seeing the service stations around uh, the country and seeing people picking up parts and being on their back underneath the vehicles and being like, oh, that's the wrong part. No, that's the wrong part. Um, and he literally was like, there's gotta be a better way. And so actually a lot of the uh, entrepreneurial spirit in my family is hardware tech. We built out a organization system called Pick a Nut. And that, that was the big family business. And I, it was, there was never any pressure on me to do entrepreneurship. It just kind of happened. So started my first company more than 20 years ago and Kind of haven't looked back since uh, to today. Powder Keg is the only private member network focused on serving, serving the tech executives and companies beyond Silicon Valley. So over 10,000 members, um, just tons of great companies, tons of great investors. Uh, Elevate Ventures is an investor in Powder Keg. Thank you. And a lot of those companies and uh, super happy to be here with Tove today. Uh, th thanks, Matt. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm stoked to be here as well. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, Grant. And it's always fun to do stuff with Matt. Uh, so my, my background, I grew up in Indiana as well, about an hour north of Indianapolis on a small little farm, uh, about 15 miles away from Purdue. Uh, I always say uh, I was uh, I was like Amish with wills. I grew up German Baptist. We actually took a buggy and a horse to church on Sundays and um, grew up without a TV and all that kind of fun stuff, but found my way to Purdue and then went to Atlanta for about five years. And then I came back to Indianapolis and uh, kind of by accident became a serial entrepreneur. I always knew I wanted to do something. I wanted to start a company, um, but the path I took was very different than what I imagined at 15 years old. Uh, but so I think it's roughly eight companies in, in seven different verticals. And uh, that all led to uh, joining Elevate last July as a CEO and super excited, not only about Elevate, um, but about Indiana as a whole. And super excited also about Glassboard, right? With hard tech, because we we're talking a, bit, a little bit before we started and it is so hard, right? Building hard tech versus, you know, call it soft tech if we use the same terminology. Um, but anyways, but that's my story and uh, excited to be here. Awesome. No, that's that's great to hear. And again, I think that our, 
we've always said that, you know, that joke about hardware is hard is, yeah. is it's in the name. Um, but it's not that software doesn't come without its own challenge. I think they're just super different. And Indiana's traditionally been such a software focused investment industry, right? Yeah. All the entrepreneurial ventures, a lot of the stuff that came out of here that wasn't Fortune 500, yeah. wasn't Lilly or Allison or Roche, was software. Um, and I, I think it really was just because the ecosystem started and existed, not because hardware doesn't belong here. It just had, you know, the, the software found root first and started growing and got big. So I, I traced this back once a long time ago. There was a company called Pansophic that was started in 1969 by a Purdue grad. And it was kind of one of the first versions of a software company. And then if you fast forward and progress to people that interned or worked at that company, uh, I, I'm trying to remember the, the first linkage, but then there was like software artistry, uh, a couple, it's been a while since I've looked at this. But then that called all the way through Exact Target, and then the, the acquisition of Salesforce, and it's like this really like definitive roadmap of this robust ecosystem we have today, right? That dates back to 1969. Yeah, like, like a major started. genesis moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it's. Have you ever seen the uh, documentary General Magic? I've not. No. Oh, highly recommend it. It is basically the pre-iPhone smartphone development that crashed and burned, but created all of the people that started the Silicon Valley tech companies. Oh wow! It is a it. phenomenal watch. I um, love the title. Did they, did they talk about Robert Shockley in that? I, I, where, did he, where did he end up going? So he, so Robert Shockley, he invented the transistor, and then and then uh, he wanted to build this little thing called a chip with some copper wires, and he was soldering stuff together. And Fairchild, then, uh, right? Right. It, 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 and then, semiconductors and uh, microcontrollers, right? Yeah, and he was in Boston, and I think he like couldn't get investors or something, so then he goes out to the almond fields, and it literally was two linkages away was Intel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the rest is history. Oh, that's right. So this, is, this is after that. This is like sure. late 90s, early 2000s, like taking your PDA and your cell phone and making them one. Yeah. 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 But but very similar, right? Just just like a spider web of of people that, you know, spun off. And, and a that's lot right. of those engineers inside of Fairchild wind up starting their own, you know, companies and fabs. And you, again, it's very similar. I bet if you went back to like the history genesis of like almost all the major semiconductor companies, yeah. uh, it's insane how much they are all linked. And, yeah. then they, and then they all merge back together, actually. I was just uh, <laughs> this morning uh, finishing up some uh, some part library work at Glassboard. And one of the things that drives me nuts is the names of, of the component manufacturers always change as soon as they merge. You know, it's no longer Vachet, it's Vachet Dale or, yep. you know, Fairchild got bought by Freescale, which got by NXP. So it's always fun to track all that stuff in our space as well. Yeah. It's, it's like the cycle, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. they, they spread out and all these startups happen and they just start merging and coagulating. They get a one big one. And now there's one player in the market. So there's lots of ripe but then, know, but then a lot of those top people, because there's so much consolidation in the market, go out and they start their own companies. That's right. and, and that's the big thing the right process now. process starts over again. Is, is you can be fabulous, right? Like, yeah. I mean, there were a number of companies, again, like in the early 2000s, um, sort of what put TSMC on the map, right? Is people started designing silicon without fabs. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden, you didn't have to have a billion dollars in fab investment to go to go build microchips. So, yep. yeah. Fun little, fun little story, though. Yeah, it's really cool. You go down that rabbit hole real, real easy. Well, in a lot of ways, it's kind of the uh, another facet of sort of the bigger phenomenon we're seeing, which is sort of, uh, we call it the unvalley or the unbundling of Silicon Valley. You know, it used to be back in the nineties, you know, it was probably advantageous to take your company to Silicon Valley if you're starting a software company. Um, but today everything, uh, there's kind of the great equalizer of talent, of capital, of customers willing to buy from startups. And so that's a lot of what we're seeing in the area beyond Silicon Valley is just all of this opportunity where now all of a sudden uh, people don't have to leave their hometown. They don't have to leave where they want to live yep. uh, in order to start a company. You know, it used to be the old adage, if, if uh, you never get fired for, for hiring IBM, 
And I, and I think it's almost become the juxtapose of that, right? If, if you're not hiring other people besides IBM, you're going to get fired yeah. because yeah. that means you're not innovating. Yeah, yeah that's right. For sure. Well, and I think it's really cool because the what happened in software, it used to be you had to have a mainframe and a server to you know compile your code and you had to go to the <laughs> office to write your code. Right. And then all of a sudden you could start writing code from home and home computers got better and faster and the internet got faster and better uh, you know, in your house. So now this you could start up a company in your garage and truly get it going until you had to go get a you know get an office with people in it and build that out. And software got to experience that a lot earlier than hardware did because computers got better first. Mm -hmm. yep. But we've just gone through the great, you know, what I call like renaissance of hardware manufacturing in your house. You know, it used to be that 3D, 3D printers, printers cost 100 and, grand yeah. and they were the size of a garage. <laughs> now you can buy, you know, a $100 printer that's smaller than your inkjet printer that can make usable parts. And it's yeah. absolutely outrageous how cheap it's gotten in the last 10 years. It really has been like 2012 till now is when it all kind of unraveled when all the patents expired. Now you have all these players in the field, and that's democratized at least the mechanical engineering side of hardware, but electrical engineering has done the same it's thing. It's kind of similar, right? I mean, again, uh, you know, printed circuit board houses, there weren't that many. A lot of them were really, you know, kind of expensive. They're designed for high, you know, volume, right? So if you weren't going to order, you know, 10,000, um, you know, they're going to charge you basically 10,000 boards, whether you made one or 10,000, right? Whereas now, again, you know, you can order boards from, uh, you know, a dozen different manufacturers of PCBs. And in a week, you know, you can have that board sitting on your desk for, you know, on the order of hundreds of dollars or, or sometimes dollars. Yeah, tens, sometimes wow. tens of dollars, right? There's even people that go one step further where they will, like in the open source community, uh, Oshpark comes to mind. They will bundle a bunch of people's designs into a single bigger circuit board panel. Because hmm. usually it's like one panel is like the smallest unit of like run or measure when they're building these things. And, and they will basically cut them up and then, you know, or you know, the panel comes back to their company, they divide it back up and then they ship it out to their uh, like customers or clients. So Interesting. it's a slower process, but again, for like hobbyist grade stuff, I mean, you can literally get boards for like tens of dollars, right? And it's again, so cool. stencils, solder paste, like all that, like get on YouTube, like you can literally figure out how to like hand solder and paste a board, you know, uh, with nothing more than like, maybe like your oven in your kitchen. Yeah. yeah. And again, my, my nephew's in fifth grade and he does that all the time. You yeah. Know, he's got a 3d printer at home yep. and he's just like, I want to, I have an idea for a thing and he'll YouTube it. And you know, six hours later, he's got yeah. the, the thing he imagined. Yeah. No, and I think that's the, the cool thing that we're seeing in hardware, that democratization of the tools of the equipment, even the software is getting cheaper, you know, 3d CAD software used to be really expensive. Now you have things like, you know, Tinkercad or Fusion 360. You can go try for free and print yeah. your own designs for free. And I think that's just starting this journey and in education into hardware design, electrical, mechanical, and even software is also experiencing this resonance again and or renaissance again in education, where now code is part of K through 12, which was would have been amazing to experience growing up. But okay. you know, I, I didn't get introduced to code until uh, college. But I think that it's starting these founders younger and it's starting their tool sets broader, which is really empowering. And I think the thing that is starting to play catch up is the ecosystem for entrepreneurs that are doing all of the things, not just the, the software, not just the, you know, business idea or finance opportunity or fintech. It's you're starting to see these ecosystems pop up around the country for true like product entrepreneurship, whether that is a software product or hardware product, but product entrepreneurship. And that's, I think, where you guys really tag in. And I'd love to hear what, what you guys see coming down the line. We've been you know, living and experiencing it, but love to see what you guys are seeing coming and what, what you guys are putting out there to help glue that together. Well, I, I can provide a little context, at least from the, the national standpoint. I mean, I'm sure Tove can too, but um, I spent a lot of um, 
2013 to 2018, after almost like burning out at a startup, working with an entrepreneur called Scott Jones, uh, notorious for just going hard. We went really, really hard and I kind of burnt myself out and was like, I think I'm ready for one of these lifestyle businesses. <laughs> uh, and so I did a ton can, can of- Can I ask real quick, how's yeah. that going? Yeah. Is it as lifestyle as you, th as you thought it would be well, at the beginning? That, <laughs> that definitely all changed in 2019 when I uh, decided, to, so the, the end of the story is I, I started to uh, see kind of a bigger opportunity and uh, that shifted me well out of the lifestyle business. But it was really during those five years kind of travel, I had a chance to just travel around to uh, just about every major tech ecosystem in the country for sure. And even got to, you know, as far away as Auckland, New Zealand and Medellin and Colombia and seeing kind of all these burgeoning tech hubs in the unbundling of Silicon Valley that's been happening over the last couple decades and started to kind of see the same pattern. And, um, you know, it's classic entrepreneurial, like there's gotta be a better way situation where you started to see, hey, what's stopping these companies and these communities from really seeing the explosive growth is uh, density of resources. And at the time, that's what Silicon Valley had over all of these other communities. Geographic density of capital, talent, customers willing to buy from startups, and it was starting to happen in these communities, but there needed to be kind of density created digitally because these communities just weren't as big, didn't have as many years, decades as Silicon Valley did, kind of building up that density of resources. And so that was the kind of like, there's gotta be a better way. I kind of tried to ignore the idea for a couple of years because I was enjoying lifestyle business and it was going pretty great. Uh, it was nice to be where I wanted to be whenever I wanted to be there. No employees, just kind of in, enjoying my twenties. Um, but it was kind of one of those like, I, I can't ignore this opportunity. I can't ignore this problem. Everyone's having this problem. Um, and there's gotta be a way we can kind of connect those uh, resources on a digital platform. That was the idea for Powder Keg. And that's why we went and raised some money with Elevate Ventures as one of our lead investors. And um, fast forward to today, it, that has really kind of materialized in the community that we've built here. Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything Matt just said. The, um, uh, what I'm so excited about the future, and I'm gonna, I'll, I'm gonna shape all this through the context of Indiana as a whole, is, uh, and one quick throwback story, you said something earlier, Grant, that like I had a, I had a flashback and started twitching a little bit. Um, when I started the, my first tech company at 27 years old, I remember I literally walked into Best Buy and I bought this piece of software that was called like Business Plan Pro or Business Pro Plan <laughs> yeah. or something. And it had a big red thumbtack. That's awesome. On the front cover of the box and that box was 50 bucks or whatever Did it come it with a book too? Was it like software and a book? I think so. Yeah. And it was how to write, have a, this? how to write a great business plan. And you know, it, you know, a great business plan has to be, I can't remember the number, but like, let's say a hundred pages long or something. Right. I remember this. And I mean, I just got chills again. And my partner and I, a buddy of mine, Todd, we, we ended up having four businesses together, but we literally spent a year writing this business plan out, just painstakingly <laughs> detailed and, you know, and you've got to map out five years and pro formas and just everything, right? Competitive matrix, all this kind of fun stuff. And the damn program would crash. Or, <laughs> I mean, I can't even tell you how many times. And I literally one night we, I, I, well, I, I won't speak for Todd, but I went to bed and I cried that night. I, I was so <laughs> frustrated. We spent like at that point, six months. And, and then like something happened. We were like press final, final, Anyway, and things got all garbly googled. And today, when you go to do something, right, you put a 10, 20 page deck and, and like 
rapid fire, right? Cause it's rapid failure, fail fast, right? Learn, rinse and repeat yep. and, and move forward. So anyway, um, so what I'm really excited about is there's this phenomenon called the productivity boom that economists talk a lot about. So MIT folks, there's a, a, a person here, Brett Swanson, um, and he wrote a whole the coming productivity boom paper. And and I deduce all this down to this this productivity boom concept being this it's in full swing, but kind of really started occurring about 10 years ago. And it's basically about the disruption of data and technology cross sector. So like we're in a makerspace here, right? And, and you're in hard tech. But but when you're trying to solve something in hard tech, it involves many different disciplines. Like when, so when you're solving something, often the application can be multi-sector. Or if you're trying to solve something, you must have multi-sector talent to solve a given problem. So there's no more silos. They're all crushed. They're dead. They've been buried. They're 20 feet under at this point. And so the disruption of data technology cross-sector, and it's believed that the epicenter is going to occur in the middle core of the United States. This is a global phenomenon believed it's going to occur in the middle core of the United States, mainly because of two reasons, proximity of industries with one another and cost structure. So if all of that's true, which I personally obviously believe it is, then there is no question in my mind that Indiana is absolutely positioned to be the innovation capital of the world in the next 50 years. But if we're going to make that claim, we would have to have seven ingredients here in Indiana. And that's infrastructure, talent, mission critical industry, technology, lifestyle, cost of living, regulatory environment. And so back to this, this making things happen fast and the efficiency that Matt's talking about is the ecosystem in Indiana, especially over the last 25 years. It's like this home degree, uh, the home of one degree separation. And there's these really intentional uh, points of connectivity Right. So, so groups like powder keg, you know, groups like uh, tech point or CI, the CICP family is all, mm-hmm. is all built around intentionality of connecting people. So whether it's ideas or talent or capital, whatever it might be is helping shorten the path for the entrepreneur to get to that next thing faster. So you have Agronovus, you have bio crossroads, Connexus, ascend is focused on talent. You have tech point. I think I hit all those groups. That's yeah. the CICP family. But even if you go up into Fort Wayne now, they just built this thing that uh, I think it's 700,000 square feet. It's called Electric Works. It is insane. I drove by, I grew up in Fort Wayne. I drove by that old building all the time. And I just always thought like, this is a shame. This could be such a cool, cool thing. And even when I started to come to Indy and Purdue and stuff and see like what some of these like maker spaces and stuff started to look like and co-working spaces, even when I would go back to Fort Wayne, I would think, this would be a fantastic place to do something like that one day. And I'm so, I was so pumped when I saw the, like the press release that that's what they were finally going to do with it. Yeah. I was like, this is perfect. That's really cool. It's it's such a neat building. There's so many buildings like that throughout middle America that are getting converted. You know, old uh, buildings have been abandoned for decades because manufacturing plants got shut down. You kind of have that like hillbilly elegy narrative of, we we came up through one, right? Like it's the exact narrative of Stutz, right? Like building building built downtown to build cars in the 1920s, right? Beautiful, gorgeous brick building, like crazy thick concrete floors throughout, right? Cause like they would literally, there's massive cargo elevators in there where they would take co- like coaches up and down to the different floors for the different yep. finishing processes, right? It's so awesome walking but, through there, all the artists, yeah, yeah. right? It's you amazing. Know, minor revamp, like I think in what, like the late 80s, late 80s yeah. or so yeah. um, with, with Turner John, he right. saw a vision for that building. Um, and then and then now it's it's un, it's basically undergoing like 21st century modernization. Um, we actually, more or less got politely told, uh, yet firmly <laughs> told to leave. <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause they were renovating and yeah. we we're on the first floor. But, sure. uh, 
yeah, it gave us the push to, to get out over here and, and yeah. get a building and, and that kind of stuff, but exactly what you're talking about. Right. Yep. Um, and, and super cool to see that. And, and I think there's parallels there too, about sort of this, like, there's a lot of really great core pieces and infrastructure that are all about, like you guys are talking about in like the middle of the United States. And really, I think it's going to be bringing all of those together and, and sort of revamping that for, for the modern era, right? Whether that's manufacturing and industry 4.0 or, you know, there's all these different initiatives that sort of exist a little bit in these verticals, but exactly to your point, I think once those verticals start to like spill out into one another, yes. you know, as that's, you know, in our space, I mean, really hard tech isn't really hard tech purely, right? Like almost everything we do has a software component, right? Right. And, and even if it has a software component, it's even generally connecting to even higher level software components, especially if it's an IOT device, right? So there's already a lot of these blurring of lines, right? So I think you've nailed on the head that it's, it's coming for sure. Right. The, um, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's here. I think it's in full swing and it's, it's a matter of, um, we've, we've tended to be more humble, you know, in this middle core of the United States. And I'm not proposing that we all become arrogant, but I am proposing that we become more confident and we tell our stories more, more often and more loudly, which is what we're doing here right now. Yeah. But thinking about California, right in proximity of, of these towns and areas, that's, we have that right here. And in, in, you think of Indianapolis, you think of West Lafayette, 60 miles up the road, and that's going to become the hard tech quarter of the world, right? Purdue's very focused on that. Um, but that's 60 miles away. You go, what, 120 miles, roughly 90 miles down to Bloomington? Less than. Less than. You got Cincinnati is an hour and a half away. You have uh, Louisville's a couple hours away. It, 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 that's a, that ecosystem of a couple hundred miles, right, is the same as a stretch of land almost in, in uh, you know, in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. right? It takes you about just as long to get from one place to another here <laughs> as it does there. Yeah. Right. And all of those kind of corridors, which right now are interstates that you see it slowly kind of connecting West Lafayette, yeah. slowly connecting more like closer and closer yep. to, to yep. Indianapolis. Same thing's happening with Bloomington. Same thing's happening with Terre Haute where Rose Holman is yeah. like it just kind of yeah. closing the gap. It just grows. Right. It's one of those like expanding radii problems where, like this Indianapolis is actually growing outwards. I think right. again, since yep. like 2011 or so we've seen like a huge revamp and investment in the city. Yep. That's happening on the macro scale from the greater Indianapolis, even the suburbs up to, you know, the West Lafayette and down in Bloomington. I think that's all, they're all going to meet in the middle. Yep. So everyone's going to be surprised when they realize that the two, the two rings touch. Yeah. They only see their ring growing. Like there's no way the other one's growing just as fast, but it is. And there's going to be this point where they touch in the middle and then it's just connected. Right. Yep. You could have a spot in between that really has the amenities of both. That's a hundred percent right. People are, are going, holy cow, you know, the, this whole that's in Indiana. Here's a couple of fun things. Warsaw, Indiana. Warsaw. Uh, so uh, Biomat and Depute, I'm, I'm forgetting the years they were founded at the moment. But the short story is there's a $50 billion GDP market in the U.S. alone for orthopedics. Warsaw, Indiana contributes 50% of that GDP. That is insane. Yep. Right? Yep. We're number one in pharmaceuticals. Right? And you go down the list, RV capital of the world, right? Racing capital of the world, image sports capital of the world. But we, we have more number one, number one, in, uh, number one in, advanced, in advanced manufacturing jobs. You look at talent. We're, depending on the college you're looking at, between Notre Dame, Purdue, Rose Holman, IU, I use the number one medical school, largest medical school. Yeah. Um, but different colleges in those universities have number one or top five rankings in the specific colleges. And then in quantity of students, we, we are like number two. And I think Purdue had just a loan in engineering, 50,000 undergraduate engineers that they put into the marketplace in the last five. I yeah, might have it slightly off. I mean, getting your degree there took a day, right? You're sitting in line for a whole day just to get your piece of paper, your name on it when you finally <laughs> did four years. Yeah, <laughs> right. 
So it's, it's insane. Yeah. People are starting to wake up and realize. Well, and it's kind of, this phenomenon is happening globally right now. And I, I think with the pandemic sort of like black swan event, all of a sudden these places, all of these places, I'm not, not picking on Indiana. This is the, the case for all the states and a lot of countries too. Uh, number one export was talent you know, pre pandemic, like number one export was talent. You look at Google and Microsoft and Facebook, you know, where did those developers come from? Oh, they came from the Midwest, you, you know, and that's, that's right. where a lot of the creative talent came from in LA. Um, and all of a sudden that's, I, I'm not going to pretend like it stopped, uh, but it slowed down. It certainly slowed down. Well, the top, the top three States where the talent now is coming back out is California, Illinois, and New York. Yep. All that, now that talent's migrating back out into brain into gain no, instead and, of and brain drain. We're yeah. exactly trying to do that right now. I think the, the best people we can find is somebody that, you know, went to Purdue IRU or has in Indiana that maybe has moved to Colorado or LA or the coasts. Right. And, and you know, try to find them and convince them like, Hey, you know, uh, you're about that age when you're just thinking about raising a family, you know, wouldn't it be nice to do it with, uh, at a cool company, you know, near friends and family, you know, from, you know, you know, from your earlier years, and, right. In some place where you could afford a whole house. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Seriously, what you can get here for a million dollars versus somewhere else yeah. is amazing. The, yeah. the smart companies, like that is a, a known strategy now that it's just sort of like you want a talent pipeline, start looking at people who went to university within a, you know, 60 mile radius of where your headquarters is. And, you know, at minimum, you know, obviously software, it's a lot easier to work remote. So a lot of these software teams are distributed yep. as well. Um, but the, the fact that you can kind of like find those people easily on LinkedIn or some other platform um, is pretty cool. And you're starting to see that sort of retracting one, of talent. One great place you can find that talent is on the powder keg platform. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. is, there, is there a boomerang filter yet? Can I just go into that's that? That's actually, right actually he didn't pay me to say that, by the way. That's that, true. I just, I just want to click a button that just immediately shows me people on the All platform the that happen to be currently outside of the Midwest yeah. that has spent, you know, some time. Yeah, you know, farm their LinkedIn profile yeah, or something. Totally. They could like get their, you know, their, their cookies and, you know, if they're searching for, you know, baby goods and cribs, that also is a filter we can add on, right? Oh, there you go. <laughs> you know, one, one thing I want to add, by the way, the number two export, I think if the number one talent the number two has to be wealth which i want to come back to that in mm, a little bit yeah um, but um but and, and i'm not trying to give matt a commercial here but but i like during the pandemic i think the, the, the culture thing really bubbled up to the top and and we worked with powder keg and and the the last company i co-founded was uh demand jump and so we we worked with powder keg to attract talent and it was all around culture it, i mean you got the skill set or not right for mm. a given position we found multiple people because they were looking for a different work-life balance. They were, they wanted to explore something different than what their present situation was. And they really wanted to join a team. Yeah. They want to work for a cool company or work on an interesting problem, but, but equally as important is that culture, who those people I'm going to be working with. Cause it's like, are we allowed to say the no asshole po oh, beep, <laughs> whole policy? Um, but like, that's becoming a real, like we don't have to put up with working with a bunch of rear ends, right. As a society yeah. anymore. And so it, you can like, that's one, one of the reasons I, I, I love looking at, at talent that way is, is that a fit for me culturally? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. No. We, we did a survey of our, our 10,000 members pre pandemic, uh, during the pandemic and now wherever we are now. Um, and the one thing that has stayed consistent is that the number one reason people join a tech company is also the number one reason they quit. And it's always company culture. Right. And so just the fact that, um, employers can be kind of culture first and how they go about attracting those people. There just weren't tools to really understand what a company culture is. 
um, at least online, it, it always kind of came down to if you stick with the hiring process long enough, you know, the third interview is the culture interview where you come into the office and it's usually highly unstructured and it kind of depends on who's available that day mm-hmm. of like what kind of uh, exposure Experience you, you get. <laughs> get to the culture. It's like, well, if you talk to Susie, you know, the culture might, you know, her take on the culture might be this. If you talk to Jim, it might be that. Um, and so just having a, a place that sort of like equalizes, Hey, here's a profile where you can learn about the company culture. You can learn about the product. You can learn about the people who work there. Um, you know, at the time when we launched that, uh, just before the pandemic, it was novel. And now you're starting to see kind of the, some of the other big companies starting to shift how they try to, to, um, display some of that information. Um, but it's still very much an inefficient marketplace and ripe for disruption and, and ripe for, you know, people living better lives. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's that's so interesting to see is like that the, for me, it's always been advertising the culture to work here. Like when I'm trying to get someone to work at Glassboard and interview them, I'm like, hey, this is how we work. This is who we are yeah. as people. In my experience in the workplace, it's always been first, yeah. right? Like the, we work on all kinds of cool stuff. You may or may not like that. And like, you're going to be talented or you wouldn't be at this interview. Right. So we've already covered those two bases. It's like, hey, are we going to work together? Are you going to like doing what we do every day and how we do it? Because it's totally different, right? What, what Glassboard does in hardware is very different than what you're going to find at a Roche or Lilly or, you know, Delphi or, or um, any one of those large corporations where there's more process and it's a little bit more segmented and you get to be specialized really deep, but you don't really get to go broad and do a ton of different things. Whereas a Glassboard yep. like, well, we kind of know what we're doing most of the time, most of the time, but a lot of it's figuring it out as we go because we've never built this device or that device before or a client wouldn't be the first to market, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And that's always kind of the, the fun fit is do you fit in how we work, not just what we work, yeah. right? Yeah. I think you kind of, you struck on it earlier and it, it jogged my memory even at Glassboard about sort of like the unbundling of verticals. And I think that's an exact euphemism for what exists sort of like inside of Glassboard, right? When we started, I mean, we looked at other companies that were sort of more in like what we called like the engineering services space. And it was like a lot of companies that were either like really good at like mechanical engineering and maybe like they had some, you know, plastic injection molding on the side or people that were really good in like electronics design and could, you know, engineer the best like, you know, high speed analog or set top box for DirecTV or AT&T or something. Right. But like one of the things that we felt like was lacking in the indie marketplace was a company that could kind of do all of that under one roof, like mm. a true product development company, right? And and you can't just do that with a bunch of electrical engineers or a bunch of mechanical engineers. Like you really have to have, I mean, we have basically at least three verticals and it's now branching out into even like a fourth at Glassboard of mechanical engineers and embedded software engineers and hardware engineers. And now even sort of the softer side of things in terms of like product patch- packaging and a little bit of like marketing and stuff, right? I wouldn't say that we're a marketing firm. Like I'm not going to go out there and, and try to sell ourselves to like ad agencies. Right. But again, like you, you find that a lot of like small to mid-sized companies, once they've designed that product, it's like these questions pop up of like, you know, aesthetically, how do we make it look good? Okay. That all involves industrial design. Okay. We've created the product. How do we make the packaging look good? Okay. That's packaging design. How do we make it not What kind of logo are we going to put on the package? Right. Are we going to put this logo that I bought off of, you know, Adobe stock when I started the company and slapped it on the pitch deck? Like, okay, we should probably, you know, we should probably update your branding a bit. Right. So it really is kind of that, like developing that, that holistic model. And again, back to your point, I mean, I think that has to, that has to exist. Right. Um, and it's difficult to find that, especially if you're a small company. Um, it's it's difficult to both afford it and find a great marketing company and a great, you know, two or three, four other vendors that all can, you know, work together, right? Um, and, and again, we mainly advertise, like, we can do that all under one roof, right? 
So that is that is the benefit there, right? Is like putting all those people in close proximity together. And then the biggest other thing that we get to benefit from is we get to see so many different industries, right? We get to see some really awesome innovation, maybe in like the medical space that we're like, huh, this would actually be work great for industrial automation Absolutely. as well, right? Yeah. Or vice versa, right? And so again, for a lot of companies, they develop innovations in a vertical or you'll find, again, a lot of services companies serve a vertical, maybe it's med device. And they're really good at that, but it's like, they're lacking that benefit of being able to take a lot of that innovation and and distribute that to to disparate like industries, right? Cross pollination is a big part of what made Silicon Valley do what it did in the yeah. 80s and 90s. And the fact that that's happening at scale now everywhere is just really exciting because you fast forward a 10, 20 years from now, just the world is going to look way different than it yeah. does today. When it's, it's not like we set out to do it. I really wish that you and I sat down, we wrote the business plan for class. I'm like, <laughs> we're going to do all these. We're like, no, we don't make really cool engineering, like a place for really cool engineers to go work to make really cool products. Yep. And we did products and we realized like, man, this client really needs packaging. And then you realize that client needs help with their pitch deck. This client needs to close a round or we're not going to get paid next month. So we got to figure out how to close that round for them. And it snowballed into what we became. And really we were an engineering firm first. We'd say Glassboard, we're an engineering firm. And now we're Glassboard product development. We're a product company. We help companies make products and get them out. And that encompasses everything from the engineering to the soft stuff. And I think that leads into where, you know, where you guys tag in here is how do we connect people to the other pieces of the pie that we might not have an expertise in, or they need more than what we can offer there? And how do we get them connected to the business side of things that's outside of development, right? Well, there's there's something to be said about uh, organizations that work with lots of different companies, because that that is where you're seeing that pattern recognition and um, I didn't tell Toph I was going to love on Elevate here, but like that's one of the things that's great about Elevate Ventures is they're the most active VC fund in the entire Great Lakes region, like this entire like upper Midwest area. So more than 500 companies in the portfolio yep. across all kinds of different industries, you know, software, hard tech, med, med devices, you name it. <laughs> yep. And so you start kind of, I mean, you heard Toph before we turned the microphones on, he's like, okay, so what kinds of companies do you work with? Because he's putting together a list in his head of like, all right, what companies should I be like connecting right. Glassboard to? Yep. And that's what we need in this ecosystem. That's what the entire world needs is better connectivity so that, you know, the right person at the right time can kind of say, Hey, you know who you need to talk to is those Glassboard guys because yeah. they know what they're doing. So, and, and this is a huge priority for us, right? Is that now that connectivity piece, right? And I feel like that's, that's really, I think where I see like our next focus in kind of mm -hmm. 23, Yeah, you know, this, you always go through different phases of your company, but I think that's, you've nailed it on the head is it's that connectivity piece. Like how do we get out there more and find more people and partners that we can, you know, bring into our ecosystem that then in turn, we can, you know, basically link our clients up with, right? It's useful for both us as a business, but it's also highly useful to have those connections for our customers and clients invariably when they need access to those resources and network, right? Absolutely. So for folks that, li that are listening to this, you know, talking about points of connectivity. So like powder keg is putting together an Indiana page, for example, they're going to have multiple pages from multiple States, et cetera. But one of those pages they just launched is, is Indiana in the, in the structure of that page is to very intentionally say, Hey, it, it, all of the, in all of these different buckets, right? These are the resources and people that you can pick up the phone and call. Um, we're, we're doing a, a, a little bit of a different version, but we're, we're hyper-focused on, so we, cause we invest in ideation, pre-seed, seed and series a mm -hmm. today. Now tomorrow, that's going to be a different story. It's going to be more exciting, but, um, but that's where we invest today. And so we're hyper-focused on really curating, okay, legal, accounting, hard tech, you know, software, uh, whatever it is, right? Talent and saying, here's the three system, the, the three groups or five groups, whatever in that space. It's like, you just go down the list or, 
you know you can make one phone call if you're in food and, and ag bioscience. You know you can pick up the phone and, and or pop an email to Agrinovas, and bam, overnight they're connecting you into Lord knows who, right? It might be Purdue, right? Like to to accomplish something. There's a uh, Paradise Spreads up in um, Sherrillville, Indiana. And she's made this incredible spread that's healthy for kids and tastes good. I actually, I, at the pitch competition, I took some to my neighborhood and I had them out to kids. I'm like, taste this. Tell me if you like it. <laughs> and, uh, but she connected in with a Purdue representative up in, um, up in the Sherville area. And then they connected her down with the main campus and they were highly active in helping her develop that product. Just with one phone call, gentleman's name up there is Mont. Um, one phone call and she's connected in and says, this is what I want to do. And the journey she went on was totally opposite of what she thought that journey would be, but it just takes you places you don't know. Like, that's the Hoosier hospitality, yeah. right? Yeah. Like that's the one thing Indiana does have. Like, you know, we always get on our high horse and talk about manufacturing and all the cool stuff we have here in the history. And, but the one thing I think we have that I've not seen anywhere else in the tech space, I and mean, most of our clients aren't even from here, right? Mm-hmm. Glassboard's clients are mostly on the coast at the moment. Yep. Um, but for our clients that are here and for the network we have built here, is that Hoosier hospitality is very real and unique, right? Yeah. It's not like, oh, I'll introduce you and now you owe me a favor. It's like at the meeting, you're getting your phone out like, oh, I'm calling Bob right now and we're going to get him on the phone. Take myself and go have a conversation with him behind me. Like it's that forceful of like, no, no, I'm going to help you if you want it or not. (laughs) And that's the cool part that I think Elevate has because you're an Indiana grown business with Indiana funds doing Indiana stuff. And it it shows, right? It's just this really awkward way of like, oh no, I'm going to help you and here we go, right? And it's super fun. But I, I think our biggest challenge to date has been the Hoosier humility kind of gets in the way because the story doesn't get told mm-hmm. about what's going on here. And so that's literally why Toph and I have been spending so much time together these last couple of months is we have been interviewing these awesome entrepreneurs across the state and even people who have gone to other states, but like have deep Indiana roots and their sort of experience in Indiana, whether that was at Purdue or IU or growing up in Indianapolis has allowed them to go do huge things with their career. Um, and so that's, that's, what's been really fun is you hear these stories of the entrepreneurs, like the founder of paradise spreads, um, which is one of our early episodes of the show. And you start to kind of like hear those stories and because people can listen to podcasts anywhere or watch podcasts anywhere, we have a video version as well. Um, it, it's kind of one inspiring because more people can kind of see themselves in that position and say, if they can do it, I can do it. If they can do it from Sheridan, in Indiana, I I should be able to do it from where, you know, wherever I live. And so I, it's cool that these stories are getting out. Um, and I'm excited to do that, you know, nationally, globally, just, uh, connecting more people to these stories of entrepreneurs, investors, people who have like really made it to like the top of their field as an executive, um, whether that's hard tech or software tech or, or whatever tech food tech, yeah. Right. Totally. I, I was down in Evansville a few months ago and, and someone said, Hey, we have the largest clinical trial database in, in the country. So I'm going to take that at face value that they have the large, largest clinical trial database. But they said, hey, we don't know IU health. We, we don't know Purdue engineers. We don't know how to connect. And so like, oh, there's all this momentum, but there's these very specific examples of where um, people are still seeking and yearning that connectivity tissue. And, and I'm not sure we want to get into it, but I want to talk a little bit about like community capital acceleration. Those are the kind of the three pillars that we think about at Elevate. 
um, and, and how we really want to impact, you know, the state over the come over the next 50 years. I am going to be working 50 years from now, by the way, <laughs> I mean, I show up at eight o'clock, but I'm going to be working. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm still going to make a free throw. Um, I'll see it. I'll believe when I see it at 102 years old, <laughs> but, but anyways, but there's, there's this, um, there's this people are, uh, if I look at 25, was it 25 years ago when I started that first tech company into today, the way people talk, the way people act, the way they think, um, thiefdoms are getting broken down. Thiefdoms are getting broken down. Silos are getting broken down. And there's just this, this pure, authentic, organic desire to be intentional, to collaborate, to be helpful in, in a scale that is, is you talk about the snowball effect, like it's full force headed downhill. It's awesome. Totally agree. Well, that's, that's great. So you, you mentioned on that. So that's that the, the capital, how is the capital looking in tech and indie and in what places do you see it growing? Yeah. That's the question I've got because you've got much better viewpoint in this. I'm yep. I'm on the like tertiary receiving end of the capital being spent in the city. <laughs> yep. um, you're you're seeing what's going out and again, Elevate really does live as the litmus test. It's like, oh, is Elevate in that first round? Because like that's yep. what everyone asks the first time someone's throwing a deck around the city. It's like, hey, are they interested? Yeah, yeah. So um, so as Matt mentioned earlier, so Elevate is the number one most active seed and early stage investor in the Great Lakes region, number twenty four in the U.S. We invest cross sector. Check sizes of 20,000 up to 1 million in any one given round up to, um, or, I'm sorry, 20,000 up to 2 million in any one given round up to 4 million in any given company, uh, over 510 uh, port codes now, uh, a little over 130 exits, 365 uh, port codes still trying to grow today. And so what, what, when I think about capital and when I made the comment earlier, if, if talent is, is that number one issue, then capital would be that number two issue. And so I, I've long believed, and this is a middle corridor issue, but I'll, I'll speak from Indiana's perspective, and, and I've seen this over the last 25 years, where one of our biggest exports is actually silent, and that silent export is called wealth. And here's what I mean by that. We take all the risk as investors in Indiana. So Elevate right now, we have 25, over 2,500 co-investors. Uh, so angel groups, VCs, whatever it might be, globally, right, that we've invested alongside with uh, in those companies in Indiana. And I don't have the exact number off the top of my head in Indiana, but let's say it's, I don't know, probably a few hundred of whether it's angel groups or angels or VCs or high net worth individuals, et cetera. And so if, if, if you are in theory, you know, uh, uh, you can articulate a story somewhat decently and there's a, a market need. And, and by the way, we, we, in the tale of two entrepreneurs for Kaufman foundation that they put out, we, we do invest in the IDE side. So the SME is a small and medium enterprises. So that's your local, you know, barbershop or something of that nature, law firm, accounting firm. We don't invest in those types of businesses. So we're the IDE side, the innovation driven enterprise. Uh, so that's a, that means you have a national global market, at least a $500 million TAM or more, preferably a billion. So that's, that's the side that we invest in. And so if you start a company here, you can go raise a hundred grand or 500 or a million or a couple million bucks. Um, it's not easy, but like it, it can, it's done a lot, sure. right? It's, it's not a rarity at all. When, when those companies grow and you have the winners of the winners, of the winners, and now that company's doing, let's say 5 million or seven or eight or 10 million. Now they're ready for a 20, 50, hundred million dollar check. Nobody invests here basically. And so when those companies go on to sell for a hundred, 500, a billion, 2 billion plus, 
over well over 90% of that wealth creation at that point in time gets recycled in other markets. It goes to Boston, New York, Atlanta, mm -hmm. to the Valley. It goes to other markets and gets recycled. It does not get recycled here. Because that's where the venture, the follow-on venture capital comes that's, from. That's, that's right. The big VCs are. That's, right. the, that's so the growth equity. They so, come in and do the $100 million round. That's right. Yeah, so what I want to like dig into here, because this is where it's fascinating for me and mostly I think ours, a huge segment of our market that needs the most help is, I think Elevate does the best job I've seen in the VC realm of the, I'll call breadcrumb trail. You can go to an Elevate pitch competition and win and get an investment. That might be 25 grand. Yeah. And that might not seem like a ton of money, but that 25 grand can help you get to your next win at a bigger pitch competition yeah. that's 50 or 100 and the snowball effect happens, right? This yeah. is, we had multiple clients come to me from either an accelerator or a business pitch competition with a single check. <laughs> like I have enough to do one month with you. That's all I've got. You know, I've got five grand. What do we do? Like, yeah. we're going to help you build your next deck and maybe a cool sketch or a render and help you, you know, polish your story to go win the next one and come back. Then we'll do some real prototyping and some real engineering when your next one come back. And I think you guys at Elevate have started to not railroad it, but put a process involved that I, I really enjoyed watching some of our, our partners go through. And how did you guys come up with that? How did you figure out that, Hey, we don't want to just write a hundred thousand dollar check the first day we can breadcrumb these guys and that leads to more success or does it, or, yeah. or are you doing that for the, for the public good? Let's find you know, out it, how this came to be. <laughs> it's a, it's a, that is a great question. And honestly, I don't believe there's any one right answer. I think every situation is kind of different. There is one other gap I've noticed recently. So you've got this growth equity gap, which by the way, more on that later, but we have a future plan to start solving that issue. Um, and, uh, but there's also this gap of, like 20 grand is awesome at a pitch competition to win that. And it, it is a stepping stone. And we'll, we'll talk about another big $5 million pitch competition, hopefully here in a little bit. I'm not sure how much time we have left, but, um, but there's also this group of people that are in their thirties and their forties and they have these things called babies and spouses and, and it's really hard and, and they're, they're, they've grown their career and they're now making 80, a hundred, 150, 200, whatever they're making they're, they're They've got insurance right? They have a house, they have a mortgage, uh, or maybe it's somebody in their thirties, mid thirties, and they've got, you know, an apartment that's a little bit nicer than the, the college dorm, right? Yeah, that's your personal burn rate. Yeah, that's right. right. Your burn rate's going up. And, and that person needs a hundred thousand dollars. And so I call it the jockeys. And so one thing that we're playing around a little bit is maybe an initiative called a hundred jockeys. What I really want to do is a thousand jockeys. <laughs> that's a hundred million. Um, but this concept of a hundred jockeys of there's, there are, we're finding people that are, that are at jobs in various cities and verticals around the state. They have these incredible ideas and they're trying to build that business plan. They're trying to meet with people at night and they've got sports and kids and spouses and all this stuff, a mortgage. And, and it's just not progressing efficiently. And so how could we think about getting those people a hundred thousand say, if you get from point A to B or point A to B to C and within 12 months, there's another hundred thousand dollars here sitting for you. And so if you could get them out that out of the gate like that in a more efficient way, I think we might see a, a whole nother batch of companies. Right. And so you're, you're trying to lay out that what I'm going to call a security blanket. Yeah. Right. Cause it's really, really easy when you graduate college and you're used to ramen noodles and you can crash right. your mom's basement that like, I can risk it for this. Who cares? If I mess up, it was a learning lesson. We've moved on. Yeah. That's a whole lot more expensive of a failure in 25 or at 30 or at 40 or at 50 now. Yeah. And so you're, you're trying to, and let me ask a question. Are you doing that intentionally to bridge the gap because that 40 year old might have more experience and might be more likely to succeed than the 22 year old that it can try for free? 
That's and right. How, and it, how do you blend that together? Is that the motivation? I'm truly trying to pick this apart in real time. Yeah, this is fun. Mathematically, um, well, number one, what's the number? Like 94% of all companies fell at before Series A, right? Yep. Or something like that. Um, so the, the, the honest answer is mathematically, I don't know if the 40-year-old 40 has a better chance than a 20-year-old. They, they definitely have a different uh, risk profile, for sure. They have a different burn rate. Um, and... You know, if, if I think about when I started, those companies I had four companies. The first tranche of companies was four companies in 10 years. I never changed my salary, how much I paid myself. I paid myself 60000 for 10 years. Um, in some years, I paid myself nothing, yeah. it, right? But I, but my lifestyle, I never changed my lifestyle, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I don't know. It, it seems it logical that there could be a little bit of a better chance that someone who's had 10, 20, 10 15, 20 years of screwing stuff up yeah. might screw less stuff up. The national data is is that successful software entrepreneur exits, uh, the median age is actually in in the forties. In the forties, yeah. yeah, of successful, yeah. you know, multi million or billion plus dollar exits and, is, and, and you know, media headlines wouldn't lead you to believe that because of course they all focus on the right call the outliers. To do it, yeah, yeah. Um, but it it has it is actually up in the forties. And it would be interesting to see is if the average starting age, like this, the average mm -hmm. age of like when they founded the business, yeah. skews way younger. Yeah. And yeah. if the median's way higher for successful exit, it means that the younger ones are less successful. Just that picking apart the data. Yeah. yeah. That's, That's a good another point. interesting fact is a lot of times we see these headlines and we're like, man, what am I doing wrong? Right. But that person just, you know, sold for whatever, 20, 50, 100, a billion, whatever the number is. Like, I'm a failure, right? Well, no, actually, there's a backstory that goes back 10 years that nobody ever talks about, mm -hmm. right? Of, the overnight success, overnight, quote, quote unquote. The overnight success. Yeah. That's exactly right. And even the ones that do hit, because there are people that do just hit overnight success. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just luck. Yeah. Preparation meets Timing luck. It's preparation meets opportunity. Yeah. Yep. Everyone that was successful and that failed, that prepared, at least prepared, it just happened to be that someone hit the right opportunity. After after seeing, I mean, we have 4,000, more than 4,000 companies in our database today. After more than a decade of doing this pitch competitions, meetups, talking to lots of different companies, uh, doing a little investing, doing a little bit of advising. Um, the, the thing that I didn't know in my twenties that I now firmly believe is that it's like 80% what market are you in? Like 80% mm -hmm. of success is like, are you in the right market? It's like, you, you gotta be a good jockey, you know, to your point to be a good entrepreneur. But like, if you want those like home run wins, it is really kind of being in the right market at the right time. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. if you can be the best entrepreneur in the world with like the coolest product, but if there's no market for, for anyone to buy that product or, you know, no market could yeah. mean a couple hundred thousand potential buyers of a product. And unless that product is, you know, selling for hundreds of millions of dollars, you don't really have a business. It, and that's the funny thing that a lot of the entrepreneurs like gloss over. So I almost wish we'd go back to that business pitch plan that everyone had to do that's a hundred pages. Yeah. Because <laughs> what I see a lot today when I get decks like put in front of me, yeah, I'm like, cool, how am I going to exit? Yeah. And, they, yeah. and these founders, if they, you know, they haven't raised money, they just stare at you with these like deer in headlights. And I'm like, uh -huh. no, no, no. Like how many units do you have to sell for me to walk away with money? Yeah. And they're like, we just, we just wanted to become at least cash flow positive by like make green. I'm like, no, no, no. You need to sell me a story <laughs> that we're going to like rob a bank here because I know we're only going to get 10% of that anyway. Yeah. So yeah. what is it? And, and how do you, uh, and again, this is a great question is like, how do you guys pick, when they're overinflating too much and that's completely BS or, you know, what's the dividing factor, right? They're always the Elon Musk joke that multiply by pi. Yeah. Whenever Elon Musk tells you it'll be out in like two years, multiply by 3.14, that's when it launches. What's your guys multiplier on like a pitch deck for like, yeah, I, TAM, I, what they're uh, actually going to get? Yeah. Well, I like to say whatever their model is, um, 
you know, cut the revenue in half and double the expenses and see if you still are interested. Okay. That yeah. tracks for me. It, well, and that's tough too, as an entrepreneur, because you're playing this game of like, all right, should I put the rational number that I actually believe based on the data yeah, is the number no one, or no should I, that. Or, or do I know the investor is going to cut it in half no, no, it's and tough, multiply right? the expenses by two? So should I just buffer everything? Yeah. Cause it's like, cause I've seen decks that are like, you know, the other honest way, to yeah. a fault. Right. And you're like, if you, if you really honestly, like if you're that conservative and you honestly think that's where you'll be, in like three years, like you shouldn't start, right? Like, no, like you should, you should not <laughs> yeah. even your investors should like, you shouldn't do this idea. Right. Yep. So it's, it does take, yeah, it does take, I think a fine balance of like a certain amount of like belief or self-confidence with a certain amount of like realism or, or being realistic. Right. So. I, I was, I was going to say, I think that's where like being educated as an entrepreneur, even someone just working in the tech space in general is so, so important. You know, it's part of why we we send out a newsletter every single week of like, here are all the companies across the Unvalley. They, they're probably not in TechCrunch. They're probably not in like the big headlines, but like these are the industries that are up and coming. These are the acquisitions that are happening. And so you can start to, if you just kind of, it's like reading the front page of the Wall Street Journal every right. day. Like once you start kind of reading and consuming and seeing what's out there, who's acquiring whom, who's investing in what, and then you start kind of asking yourself, why would they invest a hundred million dollars in that business? Right, and they had 12 employees, what are they buying? Yeah, right. what, what is the thing they're buying? Exactly. Doubts, you know, it's not this, or it's not their market, they're, you know, they don't sell that many yet, what are they buying? Their IP must be good. And that's when you can start to pattern match and recognize, okay, this is where the opportunity is. This is how I might exit my business at a, you know, instead of a 10 X multiple, a hundred X multiple. And that's why I'm going to start talking to these potential acquirers. Cause I've been watching the last couple of years, they've been snapping up companies like the one I'm starting right now. So I'm going to reach out to them today and be like, what's missing in your product? Pipeline? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You become friends. Yep. Become yep. friends with your competitors early. Yep. 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 Absolutely. I, one more quick public service announcement to any <laughs> angel uh, investors that are, they're listening out there. One of my biggest pet peeves is like, I can, no matter who I am, I can go download this little app called like DraftKings or something. And I can place these little bets anywhere I want to, as long as I tell my heart's content, but it's a whole different story. If I want to actually be like an angel investor, if I'm not accredited mm -hmm. and I think it's insane, we need to change these laws need to be changed. And, um, um, but then I also see the flip side with some angels that maybe somebody has had a great career in doing whatever, and they've saved up some money and, you know, their, their, their cousin twice removed, you know, has the next, the next, uh, and I'm going to say some of these words on purpose, the next Facebook meets MySpace, you know, <laughs> meets, meets Uber. Google yeah. meets Alta Vesta and it's Uber, but times, you know, no one has DoorDash. a Facebook for cats yet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then, so bam, hundred grand and that's it. That's the nut. And then, and it's a one-time deal. And then they're like, well, what happened? I thought this, all this, I thought I've read these headlines yeah, and I thought yeah. this stuff is for a billion dollars and it's gone in 12 months. No diversification. And there's no diversification and there's real math involved in this whole angel investing mm -hmm. game. And so if you have a hundred thousand dollars, then you, you need to place at least 20 bets, yep. right? So you need so $5,000, right? And, and so creating on ramps, if we really want to set this whole entrepreneurial ecosystem thing on fire, then we need to be thinking at the federal level how we rethink those investing rules um, and, and, and make it a level playing field. It's right now it's an unfair game that, 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 that if, if I make $30,000 a year and I can invest somehow through some mechanism, a thousand dollars into a, a startup versus DraftKings for a bet on the Super Bowl, why can't I do that? Yeah.
the scary part to me is I, I've seen the movie Wolf of Wall Street, right? Like that's yeah. why those are in Penny place. Stocks. Penny stocks. That, yeah. that, this is why these are in place because, and this is everyone that I know that's an investor could not play as an angel because they don't understand that literally the money's worthless. Is, the moment you angel invest, you're taking that check and it's going in the paper shredder <laughs> and you're hoping that it returns. Just one like day. that bet. Just right. like, just no, like the bet on DraftKings. The DraftKings yeah. was actually the best analogy I've ever heard yeah. because so it's not an investment. It's truly a bet. So if we wanted to protect that, right, people from themselves in theory, then put a percentage on it. Uh, 1%, I don't know, 2%, yeah, whatever your 5% is, yeah. of your actual income, your report yeah. income, you could invest up to some percentage. Right. Why yeah. not have accredited investor mean that you've taken some form of training or tests to understand well, the yeah. asset class and actually break in? And there's actually a really cool company here. Yeah, Jerry Hayes. Jerry yeah. Hayes, Dorio, named after the Dorio. inventor of venture, venture capital. capital. He's, he's literally supplying the angel investor, yep. like national angel investor group with the platform he was my venture capital professor at IU. He spent his entire career kind of understanding this whole asset class of, you know, private equity. And I, I think there's just massive opportunity to sort of the unbundling of venture investing. Yeah, that right. first app he created is like, it's like a gamified version of teaching what angel investing is about and the necessity to place lots of bets. And that if you stay disciplined and then you wait until the, so now you place 20 bets and then you sit back and wait and you see, oh, here's two winners that popped up. Yep. I'm going to put another. It's like a fantasy league, yeah. but yeah. for startups. Exactly. No, that's that's yeah. awesome. So the question I've got is. It's the is downside that, is the bets are on the time scale of like, you know, well, five minutes to years, hours. Yeah. And sometimes the VC game is on the order of, that's of true. years. Right? That's very true. That's very true. Is there a vehicle, and I just haven't looked into this, for a non-accredited person to go into a fund that then plays as an angel, Right. Is there a mechanism for that? And we're talking about business ideas right now. Like, could you go find a way to get it? Sort of what S SPACs are, right? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, and even that's falling apart again yeah. at a high level, right? And um, what's the word blind? Um, what was the other word back, uh, what, 30 years ago, probably? I'm forgetting the second word. Wasn't alive. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, like all that stuff is highly, it's it's not it's not allowed. Yeah. And, and yeah. the SPAC kind of reappeared, but even that, that's been... Yeah. So that's, that's the challenge is you have to, if you're going to invest as someone that's only going to put in, let's call it like 500 bucks or a thousand bucks in this investment, you don't have the time to become educated enough to do this wisely. So you needed, yeah. you need like a fiduciary to do it for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I like the idea of, uh, of SEC. If you're listening, let's just, let's just make it, let's pick a percentage. Yeah. Whatever your reported actual income is, pick a percentage, one, two, three, four, five percent. Mm -hmm. And and let people invest through vehicles into this this asset class, and I know there's a lot of naysayers out there going to say, well, venture capital as a whole doesn't return the same as S and P, you know, over time, um, and that's true, but call it a bet, don't call it investment. It's a bet, right? Yeah. It, it literally, I, that's why I like the DraftKings analogy because th that's all venture. That's all. That's all anything is. Buying right. stocks in a public company at some level is but, just betting. Yeah, but again, I think at the end of the day, I mean, yes, if, if what you're doing is chasing returns, like go put your money in Apple, right? Like yeah. it's it's literally what Warren Buffett does every single day, right? Yeah. Everybody yeah. thinks like brilliant investor. And again, early days, I agree. But like for the most part, like most of his money is locked up in pretty safe bets at this point, yeah. right? Like, yeah. but if people want to invest at the bottom end of the market, like there's, there's more than just the return on it. It's the more investment you get at the bottom of the market, I think the more you drive the innovation in the market, right? Because right. yeah. a lot Which of the, a lot the of these economy. big companies, again, they're they're at the point, and, and that's where all the new jobs are created. Right, right. Mm -hmm. yep. 
That's oh, and right. industries and, and all this other stuff, yeah. right? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you want to make a safe bet, invest your money in well-established, well-capitalized companies that are, you know, that you're preferably giving, brand of. giving a really yeah. nice dividend. Yeah, if you want to have, if you want to live, if you want to sit in the front row of the roller coaster and white knuckle it, then you put a thousand yeah. bucks into yeah. a startup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Or better yet, start one yourself, full send. That's right. At, at some point, personal finance needs to actually be taught in education. True. Well, well, I, I what have a strange no idea concept, why, that, why, right? why that doesn't happen and like why we're learning, you yeah. know, well, I won't, I won't bash any specific. Yeah. Well, uh, we're, uh, we're coming yeah. up on the hour mark here. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, again, I, I really appreciate both you gentlemen, uh, you know, joining us to talk today. I think, you know, plenty of different topics that we, that we went down, but yeah, I think at the end of the day, it, it really is cool to see uh, much like we talked about, uh, just, just the ecosystem kind of, of unfolding right in, in Indiana, in the Midwest and in the, in the broader, uh, Unvalley, Right. So, uh, it's, it's super great to be sort of a part of it and to, to also connect with, uh, with you, Matt, through through Powder Keg and kind of work on, on some of the hard tech initiatives there. And also been great to work with people at Elevate Ventures with our clients and, and trying to you know, get the funding that they need to, to get the products, uh, you know, to, to market. So. So, so Drew, we got to squeak out like three more minutes. Sure. Because okay. uh, this is going to be the selfless pitch for the state of Indiana. Okay. Um, go for it. So, uh, so for everybody listening out there, there is going to be a new event called Rally. Um, it's going to be held August 29th through the 31st this year. It'll be the inaugural year. Uh, Rally is all about becoming the world's largest cross-sector innovation conference. Uh, it will be held here in Indianapolis. And the uh, first year, we're going to have six innovation studio tracks. Uh, there'll be software, hard tech, ag and food. Uh, uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, entrepreneurship. And I lost my train of thought. Um, sports tech. And I missed one, I think. Uh, but the short story is in, uh, we're gonna have at least 5,000 people converge on this uh, from across the globe. There's already been some people from across the globe that said we were so excited, we can't wait to attend. But Rally is all about the, the convergence of disparate stakeholders cross sector. So disparate stakeholders, meaning not only CEOs of companies, but universities, right, for the talent piece. Uh, there's gonna be tax exempt nonprofit folks that are, that are focused on helping students learn entrepreneurialism. Um, and then cross sector, those sectors I just mentioned. Couple of big highlights. There's going to be a five million dollar pitch competition. Wow. Uh, so each of the five tracks will get a one million dollar um, prize. That is an investment, not a grant. Um, and then the one catch, which there is precedence out there for it, uh, the one catch is you are going to be welcomed to Indiana, and uh, for at least one year. And we are going to sell you that entire year on why you want to stay here and grow your business here and be a part of this incredible ecosystem we've been talking about. Uh, then, of course, one-on-ones with, with investors and, and companies and a separate startup pitch track and all kinds of things. So Rally, we went out and hired, by the way, the same event producer for the content tracks and the pitch competition at South by Southwest. So we are not messing around. This will become the world's largest cross-sector innovation conference. Nice. August 29th to 31st this year is the inaugural year. Well, and just to play off that a little bit, um, it will be the convergence from across the Unvalley because we're actually doing our Powder Cake Unvalley Awards will converge to at, Indianapolis, yeah. across all sectors, across all geographies, um, August 29th through the 31st, uh, com, And we're telling the stories of a lot of the speakers, a lot of the people presenting in the pitch competition on this new podcast called Get In. Um, and you can subscribe to that wherever you subscribe to podcasts at powdercake.com slash get in. Awesome. And we would love to have you guys on the show sometime. That'd be fantastic. Yep. 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 Happy we'll to always, do it. always love to hard, talk, you know, particularly hard tech, but all things entrepreneurship as well. So absolutely. Well, and, and all of your uh, clients, I think that there's just some great opportunity of some of the ones that are kind of 
in that yeah. breakout phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be a really cool, no, we, cool thing we'll to We'll definitely talk to them about this because I, I can already think of a couple that would like honestly be a, a great fit. Like they're they've got some traction. Like they're they're still early, right? But you know they've they've really started to to make some moves. So. Thanks for having us on the show and, and congrats on everything that you've accomplished with this podcast and, and with Glassboard as well. Thanks, awesome. guys. Thanks, yep. thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thanks. Appreciate it. Take care.